Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome to the Forum at the Harvard School of Public Health. I'm Chris Russell. I'm a longtime science journalist, and I'm currently a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, our topic today is a controversial one, one in the recent news. It's smog or jobs, the impact of tighter ozone control, pollution control on health and the U.S. economy. And on September 2nd, in a surprise announcement just before the Labor Day weekend, President Obama asked the EPA to withdraw a controversial air quality proposal that would have tightened the allowable levels of ozone, which is a key component of smog. The EPA had asked for tighter standards to protect the public health, and particularly vulnerable Americans from problems such as asthma, lung, and heart disease. But the change in the regulation would have thrown hundreds of American county, counties across the country out of compliance and required a major enforcement action and changes in industry. In postponing the EPA's action until 2013 as part of a regular review, Obama himself cited the need to, quote, reduce the regulatory burdens and uncertainty as the economy struggles to recover. And the decision was praised by business groups and it was decried by environmental and public health groups who felt that the president and had sided with his advisors and caved in to business and special interest. So today we're going to look at this issue, the degree to which it does pit smog and its public health consequences against the U.S. economy and jobs. And the forum has assembled a very distinguished group of experts to look at the science and the policy questions that the Obama decision raises. We're going to begin with Dr. Douglas Dockery. He's the chair of the Department of Environmental Health at the Harvard School of Public Health and himself a longtime researcher on the health effects of air pollution. And he's going to give us a brief overview of the science of ozone and air quality. Then we'll follow up with two scientists who have been involved over the years in advising the Environmental Protection Agency, Dr. Rogene Henderson, scientist emeritus of the Lovelace Respiratory Research Institute in Albuquerque, New Mexico, who has also done basic research on lung function and is a former chair of the EPA Clean Air Advisory Committee from 2004 to 2008. She'll be followed by Dr. Roger McClellan, a leading international expert on toxicology and human health risk. He's been an advisor to public and private sector groups on these issues of risk and particularly air pollution, and is a consulting professor at Duke University. He was also a chair of the EPA Clean Air Advisory Committee back in 1988 to 92. Not surprisingly, this decision came under scrutiny from outside groups. And we have here today John Walk, senior attorney, attorney and director of the Natural Resources Defense Council Clean Air Program. Prior to being at NRDC, he was at the EPA in the Air and Radiation Law Office and he's also been in private practice working in this field. Finally, we're gonna look at the economic impact with David Montgomery, a PhD economist and senior vice president of NERA Economic Consulting in Washington. 
He's a former assistant director of the Congressional Budget Office and former deputy assistant secretary for policy in the U.S. Department of Energy. So, Dr. Dockery, we're going to turn to you to give us a quick summary of the scientific issues that are involved with ozone. Great. Thank you. And good afternoon. So we here at the Harvard School of Public Health have been studying air pollution and its control for about 50 years. And today I just want to provide some context for this debate about these ozone standard. So ozone is one of six uh, criteria pollutants which are defined by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Under the provisions of the Clean Air Act, the EPA administrator is required to establish air quality standards for these criteria pollutants which protect the health of even the most susceptible in the population. And moreover, the administrator is required to periodically review the scientific evidence for these air quality standards and revise them in light of the new evidence. While economic costs play a role in developing plans to meet the standards, the standards themselves are not to be decided based on economic considerations. So what is ozone and what are its effects? Ozone is a highly reactive form of oxygen. It rapidly reacts with any surface it comes in contact with, producing an oxidative reaction. This can be very damaging to biological tissues. And indeed, we use ozone to uh, remove pathogens, to kill pathogens in drinking water systems. So you can imagine when we breathe this into our lungs, it can cause inflammation to un unprotected tissues. Uh, in experimental studies of healthy human volunteers breathing controlled amounts of ozone, we see reductions in their lung volume, in their flow rates, we see reduced exercise performance, uh, we see respiratory symptoms, and we see short-term inflammation. In observational studies in asthmatics in the community, we see that breathing ozone causes shortness of breath, can trigger asthma attacks, which would require uh, use of a uh, rescue inhaler, or if not managed, treatment at an emergency facility. On days when ozone is high, we see emergency department visits for respiratory conditions increase. We see respiratory hospital admissions increase, and we see respiratory deaths increase. Recent studies have reported that people living in communities with higher average ozone concentrations have higher death rates from respiratory causes. New evidence suggests that the effects of ozone are not restricted to respiratory conditions. Days with high ozone have been shown to be associated with high heart attacks and other cardiovascular events and increased deaths from cardiovascular events. Ozone is different from the other criteria pollutants in that it's not directly released out of smokestacks or tailpipes. Rather, it's formed by reactions of sunlight with hydrocarbons and nitrogen oxides in the air. Thus, ozone is produced locally at the, near the sources of the, these pollutants. But often, the highest concentrations are often far downwind, tens, hundreds of miles far uh, away from the sources of these primary pollutants. Thus, controlling ozone requires controlling emissions from multiple sources, which are often far upwind in other cities, other states, other regions, or sometimes even other countries. Uh, despite these difficulties, there have been remarkable improvements in air quality in the United States in the past four decades. EPA reports a 30% decrease in the national mean maximum daily ozone concentrations between 1980 and, 19, and uh, 2009. Nevertheless, the fraction of the population living in regions with high 
uh, ozone are much more frequent than any of the other criteria pollutants. And the American Lung Association has reported that 48% of the people in the United States are exposed to ozone levels above the standard. Moreover, uh, while the number of high days have gone down and the number of uh, violations has gone down, we see that the background concentrations have been increasing worldwide, especially in the cleaner areas, which suggests that the background levels of ozone are increasing around the world. At this time last year, we were recognizing the 40th anniversary of the 1970 Clean Air Act and the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency. We celebrated the enormous strides that have been made in cleaning our environment, and particularly the successes in cleaning the air. In the forum today, we're going to ask, given the strides we've made over the past 40 years, have we gone far enough? And can we afford to make further improvements in air quality? Thank you. Well, we're going to turn to uh, Dr. Henderson to start answering that question. Now, you are concerned and have been on record um, as the chair of the uh, EPA Scientific Advisory Committee that the current standard set in 2008 is not uh, low enough to really protect public health. Could you follow up on that and, and where we are today? Yes, uh, <clears throat> I was chairing the uh, Clean Air Science Advisory Committee from 2004 to 2008, and our ozone panel, or, which was made up of the best, uh, some of the best scientists in the country working on this problem, they came to unanimous consensus that the range uh, that would be uh, for the ozone standard that would be protective of public health would be from 60 to 70 parts per billion. And we gave this advice to the administrator. Our committee is advisory only, and we are there to inform the decision made by the administrator. Administrator Johnson at that time chose to set the standard at uh, 75 parts per million, which was outside the range that we had recommended but still a reduction from the 84 parts per billion that had been uh, in place before. So our committee wrote a letter uh, to the uh, Administrator Johnson saying we were pleased he had lowered the uh, standard, but we did not think he had lowered it enough to be protective of public health. Uh, and we reiterated that we felt the uh, standard should be in the range of 60 to 70 parts per billion and stated that we hoped that our studies and, uh, and that of the future uh, KSAC panels would sub further support uh, the, the fact that the standard is set at 75 parts per billion was not protective of the public health. Uh, so what happened then? Um, Two, two things began to happen. The new administrator, Jackson, when she came in, looked at this and said, uh, I want to examine this and see whether we need to change that 75 parts per billion. And this standard. is under the Obama administration. That's right. right. The, new, the new administrator looked at it and said, let's, let's reinvestigate this and look at it. And, uh, and then secondly, at about the same time, a new uh, ozone panel was formed under the Clean Air Science Advisory Committee to begin the f normal five-year cycle review of the ozone standards. So there were two groups, 
internal to the EPA and then the external advisory group who are looking at essentially the same thing. It's, is this standard protective of public health? Uh, Administrator uh, Jackson put this forward to Obama, to President Obama, uh, for consideration. And he, he essentially said, let's hold off on this because this is, is uh, 011 and we're going to have uh, recommendations from the next uh, ozone panel committee that's already formed. It's already looking uh, at uh, what's happening. Uh, and all the new experimental evidence that, uh, from what I've heard, I'm not on that committee, but from what I heard, it supports uh, the recommendation of the panel that I did chair. And let's, uh, let's wait and see uh, what they recommend in 013. Now, I think this is a wise move on the part of Obama in that if you start changing the standard too often, so you have, we had potentially having three standards for ozone within five years in 08, 011, and 013, uh, it could cause confusion among people trying to implement that. And uh, I would reiterate what our committee said to uh, Administrator Johnson. We hope that you will take into account our findings uh, uh, in setting and considering you or your successor would, would take into account our findings in setting the 013 standard. And uh, that is what appears to be happening now. And uh, I just want to emphasize how much I support the clean air rules that would, uh, that have benefited us so much from 1970 on. As Doug Dockery has said, it's been a big success. We have cleaner air. I, I don't accept the premise set up by our very um, jazzy title, uh, Jobs or Smog, <laughs> which I don't accept that as a logical premise. It's not either or, it's both and. I think we can have both clean air and jobs. And that is because industry is very innovative and uh, has skills to change their uh, techniques and their technologies to develop better ways to keep our air clean. And a good example of this is the diesel engine. How many of you have sat behind a big old diesel truck years ago with the black smoke spouting out and said, surely, surely we, that's not healthy? Well, uh, the regulations uh, went into <coughs> effect and by charge, industry knew how to handle that. They, they cleaned up that engine. They're, they're extraordinarily innovative in what they can do uh, once they have been challenged by a regulation. So uh, this is an example of having, you know, we can have good industry and clean air all at the same time. And uh, I, I think that's the greatest example of how regulations motivate industry to improve their processes. So, so but just to wind up, yeah. bottom line, you thought more could be done in 2008, and, and you, as far as you know, from the scientific perspective, you still think uh, that the standards should be tightened I think the process up. is working. A new committee is looking at it, and that the, I think the, uh, the standards should be set at a health protective level, which, I, again, I agree, between 60 and 70 parts per billion. Okay, we're going to take another scientific view uh, from Dr. McClellan. How, what's your perspective on this? 
Well, my perspective, uh, I share many of the same views expressed by Professor Dockery and by my longtime colleague, uh, Dr. Henderson. Let me first say it's a real pleasure to be here at the Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, as I came here today, it brought back many memories of the many colleagues that I've worked with over the years uh, from the Harvard School of Public Health, some of whom are in the room here today. I couldn't help but think of my early days on EPA advisory committees serving with the late uh, Dr. James uh, Wittenberger, who I think held the same position that Dr. Dockery holds today. So uh, there is no question the contributions of this institution to clean air and public health. Uh, the Clean Air Act, as we've already heard, is a, a very important piece of legislation. It is the national statute guiding clean air in the United States. It's a complex regulation. A key part of it, one might call uh, the, the goal post, the goal setting piece, and that is the setting of national ambient air quality standards for these six criteria air pollutants. The act is very specific in charging the administrator with setting those standards to protect public health with an ample margin of safety. The statute as it was amended in 1977 also calls for the administrator to seek the advice of scientists, a specific group of scientists, and as that uh, standard is uh, set. Some ways you can envision this process as one of a, a train rolling down the track. It, it, it rolls, sometimes it speeds up a bit, sometimes it slows down. The act specifies that every five years there shall be a review of the science and reconsideration of, of, of the standard. That's the process that Administrator Johnson used and he concluded in March 2008 a lowering of the standard from 84 parts per billion, eight hours averaging time, very important to recognize it has an averaging time, and a statistical form basically designed in terms of the, the peaks. So the actual average concentration of ozone will be much, much lower than the 84, he re reduced that to 75. In doing that, he took note of the advice he had received from the Clean Air Scientific Advisory Committee. And he noted that it was a blend of both science and policy judgment. I agree with that view. And thus, it was his prerogative set to standard at some level, and he did that, 75, I thought that was appropriate. Same time, the train was moving forward with the next review, as Dr. Henderson has indicated. That would have been completed in March 2013. Administrator Jackson came into office. She, in essence, said, well, if I had been here a year before, I would have made a different policy judgment. I would have set the standard lower. And thus, she, in sense, put out a, another track, a fast track. I'm pleased that at the same time, the process moved forward in terms of that regular review. That's been going on, already out there. So uh, she delayed on a number of occasions, finally sent forward a proposal to the White House, and as customary, the White House reviewed that in terms of the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs in OMB, an office chaired by, again, a Harvard connection, Cass Sunstein. He offered advice back to the president and said, 
This is an optional standard. It is not required. And moreover, it is not based on the latest science. The result of that was the decision to not proceed. I think President Obama made a wise decision based on the advice received from Cass Sunstein and proceed forward, look at the standard. They'll have the opportunity in March 2013 to review it. When they do that, one of the pieces of science that I think will be very important to consider again has a Harvard connection coming from the laboratory of Dr. Jacob, Daniel Jacob and his colleagues and they have revised their views on ozone background levels. They've moved from a very loose spatial dimension, essentially what would be the average concentration over half the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, down to a much closer spatial dimension and time-wise to the eight hour. And what they show is that we have background levels of ozone, those peaks coming up to about 60 ppb. So the administrator is going to need to keep that in mind and at the same time, I hope she'll listen to another voice with a Harvard connection, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, who in American Trucking versus EPA gave very thoughtful advice on the setting of the standard. Well, we're going to leave Harvard for a minute and go back down to Washington. Uh, very, very different perspective uh, from our next speaker, uh, Mr. Walk. Obviously, this was uh, the announcement, which had been delayed, uh, this, this uh, effort by the administrator of EPA, uh, Ms. Jackson, had been going on for some period of time. So it was a little bit surprising to some of uh, those observers in Washington when this Labor Day surprise came about. Often in Washington, they announce things on Friday when they're trying to stay out of the news, and particularly a holiday weekend. So uh, you likened it to a bomb going off, and I think one of your colleagues said it was, to use a maybe bad pun, a bad air day for uh, Washington. So give us a little sense of the consequence of this from your perspective for the process, but more importantly for the public health. Sure. So let me just offer the Washington perspective of the real politics that drove this decision against the backdrop of the governing legal considerations. This is fundamentally a legal responsibility uh, governed by the Clean Air Act, which says that EPA has to set health standards that are requisite to protect public health with an ample margin of safety. The law gives one person and one person alone the responsibility and duty to make that decision, and that is the head of EPA, Lisa Jackson. Lisa Jackson declared in a review of the 2008 Bush standards that was prompted by lawsuits by the American Lung Association and requests that she reconsider those decisions the minute she took office. She declared in the course of her review that the Bush standards from 2008 were not legally defensible based upon the scientific considerations in a letter to a sitting U.S. Senator. The Supreme Court ruled, as Dr. Dougherty alluded to, that uh, in a unanimous decision from 2001 um, that it is unlawful to consider economic and cost considerations when defining how much air pollution like smog is unhealthy. So this was the, dis this was the posture confronting the President uh, when he intervened, unfortunately, on 
avowedly economic grounds that he thought they were going to, the standards, stronger standards would impose a regulatory burden on industry, and really quite nakedly political grounds. Uh, there was a member of Congress who declared um, in response to their protest that it was not a political decision. Uh, it's almost insulting to say this was not about politics. Who were they kidding, please, end quote. And that was from a Democratic member of Congress. Um, it is, uh, you know, the most widely known joke in Washington that this was, uh, you know, to, 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 to disclaim that this was uh, a political decision. It plainly was. Um, let me uh, dispense with one uh, straw man that one sometimes hears that, uh, you know, EPA is legally bound to adopt the recommendations of the science advisors. They plainly are not. I don't think they are. But they are required to provide reasonable grounds, non-arbitrary grounds, for why they are disregarding those recommendations, disregarding the scientific studies on which they were based. And the uh, administrator, Johnson, in 2008 failed to do so. Uh, he failed to do so in 2006 with other standards governing soot pollution, and that was quickly overturned by the courts uh, in early 2009, I think on the same grounds that you will see these standards overturned as well. So the question is then um, not smog or jobs, because I agree with Dr. Henderson, it's, we will have smog and jobs. The question is when the person tasked with carrying out the law deems standards on the books to be legally indefensible and tries to correct them, what does it mean for our democracy when the president intervenes on openly political and economic grounds in defiance of a Supreme Court decision in order to push this off until after an election um, in defiance of both the law and the United, uh, unanimous scientific recommendations? I think it was a, a dreadful decision and it means that um, the president has condemned EPA to defending in court against the American Lung Association and others standards that the head of EPA knows to be legally and scientifically indefensible. Well, we'll, we'll end with uh, a comment uh, and discussion by Dr. Montgomery on what he's looked at from the economic perspective to give us a backdrop and then we'll get back to these issues of uh, the propriety of uh, President Obama's decision. Thank you. Um, I'm also very pleased to be back here at Harvard. Um, Dr. Dockery uh, brought back the memory that I think I started working on um, air, pollu air pollution and economics 45 years ago here at Harvard when I started working on my dissertation and uh, then was at Caltech at their Environmental Quality Laboratory working on ozone issues through most of the 1970s. Um, and I'll start out my economic perspective by saying I agree with Dr. Dockery and Dr. Henderson. Uh, we have made tremendous progress on ozone in particular over the past 45 years. And um, it's important, I think, to recognize that in our general references to the health effects of ozone. The fact is that there are a lot less incidents occurring because of ozone today than there were back in 1980 because um, the state and as because people are exposed to far far less ozone and I was living in Los Angeles then than they were in the 1970s the standards have been getting tighter and tighter all the time and so we've in many ways had the same number of people living in violation of the standards but that's because the standards have gotten tighter over time and that's really I think the basic issue in thinking about the economics um, 
it's not a matter of whether I can claim that more jobs are being lost because of the regulation than someone else can claim are being gained somewhere else in the economy because of the regulation. That's not the economics. The economic question really comes down to kind of the classical definition of prudence. And it's pretty much that if you pursue one objective without regard to other consequences that your decision might have, you are likely to do something very bad. And I think that's the perspective that we should, that economics brings for thinking about the Clean Air Act. Um, and in many ways, I think the question is not whether the president did something that was either legal or responsible in terminating this particular proceeding, but whether the Clean Air Act is a framework that can be made to work under Justice Breyer's guidelines when we are essentially getting down to a requirement for zero emissions. Because if we're down to background, you're going to exceed background if you contribute anything to, the, to air quality. The basic economic principle applies to this is diminishing returns. Every emissions reduction, every change in emissions, every reduction in emissions that we undertake is going to cost more and is going to have smaller benefits as we get closer and closer to background. And that implies that when we do the economic analysis, if we start in 1970, we're going to find that reducing the standard by 10 parts per billion has huge benefits and relatively small costs. Now we get to a point where if we reduce the standard from 75 to 65, we're getting very close to kind of the, the limit where something starts to go asymptotic in order to reach the actual, in, in order to get ourselves down that far. Um, and I think that that's what the, econo what the economic studies are telling us, that as we get closer and as we push further and further at this point, we are going to see that the costs and to the rest of the economy, the things that we have to give up that the rest of the economy produces for us in order to devote those resources to reducing ozone emissions don't have benefits that are larger than the costs. And EPA's own regulatory impact analysis that they did in the process of this, new, of this regulatory reconsideration shows exactly that. That the, it makes it abundantly clear that the potential reduction of ozone concentrations that are under consideration would have costs greater than their benefits. This is, this is true of every case that EPA examined when you look at the ozone benefits and the costs of meeting the standards that are being, that they anticipate are being proposed for ozone. Um, if even if you include what I think is scientifically a very controversial proposition that there is a causal relationship between ozone and mortality at these levels, still EPA comes up with, EPA itself comes up with the conclusion that the costs of the, of standards anywhere from 70 to 55 would be greater than their benefits. If you eliminate the ozone mortality, you get net costs that are in the tens to 80, you know, from 10 to 80 billion dollars a year for the different standards. The only way that EPA justifies the ozone standard, and I think this is very important to understand, is by saying it will have co-benefits for particulate matter. It's the PM mortality, the particulate matter estimates of reductions in mortality that is expected deaths, you know, shortening of life expectancy, accelerating of a heart attack, that, that they use, that is used in the economic analysis to justify the standards on ozone. Well, 
That does not make any sense to me, either as a policy analyst or as a regulator or as an economist, because you do different things to control ozone. The benefits are coming both from reductions in P so the benefits are coming from a different pollutant that you would regulate sources in different ways in order to control efficiency, and they're being used to justify a regulation on something different that does not have benefits of its own that are found to exceed the costs. Could you just, when you're throwing out the terms benefits and risk, could you clarify, I mean, are the benefits being measured in preventing uh, health effects? I mean, how are, how are those being quantified in terms of benefits? Because one, one of the challenges really is that the classic public health premise of preventing both morbidity, health effects in terms of lung and, as, as was mentioned, heart disease and potentially other things. The people that that might impact, the vulnerable people, are different than the people who uh, might be, who are having the cost of, you know, making the changes in industry and such. So you have two different kind of a disequilibrium between the people who are at risk and the people uh, who are going to pay to change the standard. But how are you using these terms of benefit and risk? Um, the way it's done by EPA and by everyone else they know of is the standard public health methodology. Um, you look at the uh, you look at illness and look at the cost of illness in terms of avoidable expenditures on medical care, in terms of lost wages, um, in terms and in terms of lost worker productivity. Um, on the side of premature deaths, the premature deaths are, are valued based on the value of a statistical life, which is based, which is a number that has been getting larger and larger over the years. Both of those are topics that we could debate for the next seven weeks. But these estimates are done in the standard way using the standard numbers for all of those effects. The costs on the other side are estimated by looking at essentially what are the, I mean, this is a very simple analysis that EPA did. All it's looking at for the costs are what are the control measures going to cost. It actually only looks at about what half the control measures are going to cost because it doesn't know what the other controls will have to be. Well, isn't it, again, back to a point made earlier, whether you like the law or don't like the law, there is this aspect of it being a health-based standard, and specifically, as I understand it, for the EPA to be looking at the costs and benefits of the health uh, effects and not at the economic uh, costs of complying with the law. So uh, I think this is confusing in this room uh, and out in our audience and in the public at large. You know, what is it? It does seem like uh, the law says one thing and the reality is something different than that. Well, I think, uh, again, I, I go back to uh, the Supreme Court Justice uh, Stephen Breyer in the American Trucking Association, uh, EPA or Whitman American Trucking uh, case. He, he gave a very thoughtful discussion of, of the advice, and I'd say it, it's the rule of common sense. It's to recognize that the administrator does not have to drive to zero, but has to make an informed policy judgment. And uh, I think that's what Administrator Johnson did, 
and I hope that future administrators do that, but look even more to the advice given by Breyer. It is not a matter of being able to stack the science in a very precise way and say, this is the level that is scientifically appropriate. It is a policy judgment. But, but just going back a step, and I'd like our other two panelists to jump in before we take your questions. You, at the time of the uh, judgment uh, in the Bush administration, mm -hmm. You yourself uh, went public, testified before Congress that you thought that there had been willful disregard of the science because of politics or something like that. I'm not quoting you exactly, but you didn't feel that they were following the science. So uh, they, we uh, disagreed with the choice of 75 parts per billion as being protective of the public health. I think you're referring to the yes, secondary and, and, standard. And that's what I'm kind of getting back to of whether uh, that is the criterion that has to be used in, yes. from the scientists believed it should be lower, and maybe from And Mr. Montgomery is right. We have done such a good job, I think, on ozone, and I would add particulate matter, that we're getting down to levels approaching background. Now, these are just points are discussed in our committee. You know, people but, but was, your committees did feel that there was still more that could, could be, done be done before exactly. we've reached, you know, I think it was raised by Dr. Dockery at the beginning, how much is enough? Your committee at the time of the advice of 2008, and I think the current committee uh, gave advice to uh, EPA Administrator Jackson that they agreed with your committee that there was still more that could be done from a public health standpoint. Exactly. We felt that they could go, go down to the range of 60 to 70 parts per billion and still uh, be within the range where you could help protect public health. We didn't kid ourselves that we could go below background. I mean, yeah. because... That, that was a... Uh, that, that committee, which you're referring to, is really a, was an ad hoc committee chaired by the current chair of case, Clean Air Scientific Advisory Committee, John Samet. John Samet, in mean his letter... the advice to the current administrator, administrator Jackson. Right. And yeah. in yes. March of, of this year, he wrote to the administrator and at the beginning of his commentary said, the decision on an adequate margin of safety is inevitably a decision of science and policy. That I think is a clear statement on his part that the 60 to 70 was a blended decision, science and policy. And that will inevitably be the case when somebody says, what should the standard be? Because there is no scientific methodology that you can use to say, this is the right number. I, I, but but I we do have a system for getting advice from scientists, and, yeah. and there, this was an issue in the uh, Bush administration of whether the scientists were being listened to. So I'm, I'm just trying to clarify. It's a complicated checkered history. Let's have one more comment before we go to questions from uh, Mr. Walk about this question of protecting the public health and following the law. Sure. And the fact that it's, I believe, now going to go back into court again, right? It is. Um, I mean, this panel actually shows the same pressures in Washington of, of how much insistence there is upon uh, taking economics into account in disregard of the law. Um, the law does not 
allow that. A unanimous Supreme Court decision does not allow that. I'm always amused to hear invocations of, of Justice Breyer's uh, concurrence in that decision because across the river over at the law school we referred to a concurrence as musing aloud. Uh, it has no legal import whatsoever, but it's a reflection of the, the, the just almost burning insistence to, to make this uh, debate uh, about economics and defiance of the law. The information that was referred to by my colleague here it was taken from a document that is provided by EPA purely for informational purposes consistent with an unenforceable executive order. It's for policymakers to consider for informational purposes, but it may not govern the decision uh, based upon the public health uh, exclusive basis of the Clean and Air And where did that estimate that was thrown around of uh, the cost of compliance being $90 billion? The, was that, that you know that that was a a a a a wonderfully conceived soundbite by industry lobbyists to refer to the 60 part per billion level of the range that EPA had absolutely no what uh, intention whatsoever of adopting from the beginning. We know from various sources that EPA had sent to the White House a standard of 70 parts per billion, and the compliance costs with that were vastly lower. Were outweighed by the benefits in EPA's study, but that wasn't supposed to drive the decision and until the president intervened and made clear that he was interfering on economic grounds uh, and trumping uh, Administrator Jackson's declaration that the standards we now are forced to suffer under uh, are legally indefensible. I beg right. to differ on a couple of those facts, though, because um, I actually just finished reviewing that RIA and even explain at, what an RIA, sorry, the regulatory yeah. impact analysis. We, we've, that, uh, we've tried to regulate being, uh, uh, any yeah. acronyms, <laughs> but we can't, we can't keep it out. That my, uh, that my colleague was referring to. Um, it did find, if you look at the ozone benefits alone, that the ozone benefits did not justify the ozone standard. The costs were in a twelve, were in around eighteen billion dollars for the. Um, 70 part per billion standard, the ozone benefits of avoided mortality were estimated to be less than that. But I think the really important point is that, and the reason I think the experts confuse people is we make the law. The citizens of the United States make the law. The con Congress created the Clean Air Act. If the Clean Air Act is making decisions more difficult rather than less difficult, we need to think about it. It used to work much more easily, which is before our litigious society forced EPA to a set of very specific deadlines for implementing the regulations that would that follow from declaring an air quality standard. The way it worked was you could declare that the science said that based on our current instrumentation, we should protect the health with a standard of 84 parts per billion. That's sufficient given what we know in 1977, say. EPA then looked around and it took costs into account when it decided how long to take to implement that. We did have a system at that point that was quite balanced. You could purely have the scientists say this is our goal. The economics came in and figuring out how fast to get there. Now we can't do that. Well, Hopefully this is all clear, although I'm still not clear on this question of the fact that the economics clearly is coming into the discussion if technically on the law it's supposed to be health-based. But So there, there is a, a contradiction 
on its face, I think we're seeing here. But let's go to the audience and see if you have some questions to uh, bring to light here. Yes. And I'd like everyone to identify themselves clearly and, and remind you that uh, we have this room and we also have an online audience both now and potentially in the future. Okay, thank you. My name is Petros Kutrakis. I'm a professor of environmental sciences. I also am the director of the Harvard EPA Clean Air Center. And also I had the honor to serve with uh, both uh, Dr. Henderson and Dr. McLean. Um, at the, uh, the panel, the two panels, 97 p.m. and 2002 p.m. So particulate matter. Particulate matter. Okay. Uh, we, we have uh, translators uh, lurking <laughs> here, but uh. so um, I have a comment and one question. The comment is that I just want to make uh, clear that we have been very bad in terms of reducing ozone in the United States. Actually, all this, the other six uh, criteria pollutants have decreased tremendously over the years as a result of the regulations we have developed, but ozone has been very stubborn. And also the background is increasing. So I think that's something to keep in mind. Now, my question is that ma when we serve at the PM particle, particulate matter panel, we had very strong evidence from epidemiological studies. And everybody felt very strong about reducing both the annual and the daily standard for PM. I did not serve matter. particulate <laughs> matter. I did not serve the ozone, but I have the impression that uh, most of the evidence for the setting up the ozone standard came from inhalation studies, where you expose humans to different levels of ozone, namely the Adam study, and less came from epidemiological study. My question is that, do you think that we had stronger evidence for a more strict standard for PM? or for ozone. Personally, I think the case for ozone was weaker than PM, but I would like to know your impressions. And, and I'm going to just emphasize, we've really got to make the answers very quick, and, and we'll have to save detailed science for our after show. Uh. I, I, would, I was uh, chairing uh, for both of those, and uh, not in my wildest dreams would I hope to make a quantitative comparison between the amount of evidence for one versus the other. There was epidemiology evidence, uh, particularly hospital admissions, et cetera, that, did, that influenced the ozone. Uh, so it wasn't just a chamber studies. Uh, it was both, and uh, balanced studies. Uh, and uh, there was strong evidence. You're right, we have the problem with ozone that there is no bright line where we say it has no toxicity and, and the, the background is rising. Uh, what are we going to do? And, and our committee discussed that at length and we felt that 60 to 70 was as low as, as we would go uh, because of those things. But it's good to see you again, Petros. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll take another question. And again, if we can have questions, and just uh, very brief, thank you. Thanks. I'm Julie Goodman from Gradient, and I'm also on the adjunct faculty at, in epidemiology. The, the premise of this forum is that President Obama had a choice between improving health and keeping jobs. And there's an implicit assumption that lowering the standard would have lowered health effects. But there's an argument to be made that if one evaluates the weight of the um, entire body of scientific evidence, that this evidence does not indicate that lowering uh, ozone exposures below the current standards would actually um, 
benefit health. So this would mean that we would be losing jobs with no benefit. And so I was wondering if Drs. Henderson and Dr. McClellan could speak on that. Well, well Dr. Henderson will say, I, I, again, as I said before, I don't accept the premise that, that we have to choose between jobs and, and health. I think we can have, uh, we have only to look at China and India to see what happens when you emphasize industrial development Maybe they really needed to do that with and ignore uh, uh, cleaning up the air. The U.S. has been able with the Clean Air Act to advance industry and to advance clean air. So we need to, to, uh, to continue along the road that the Clean Air Act has led us. There are going to be questions because we've been so successful about, you know, what do we do now? Do we start looking at mixtures? Do we start uh, handling... Uh, uh, air pollution control in different ways, but those are all very hard questions. But I, I really don't accept the premise that we've got, it, it's either jobs or public health. It's, we can have both. And I'll let Roger come Well, uh, first of all, uh, it's sort of a, a false premise to set up that uh, a new standard automatically changes things and, quote, there's more health, health protection the next day. We've had changing standards over the decades. And what we have is a long, slow trajectory of reducing the levels of these various pollutants in the environment. Uh, Professor Katrakis is absolutely correct that ozone has been more intractable than the others. And that's in part because, in part, ozone is created from natural sources in terms of volatile organic compounds, not just industry. Uh, he raised a very important issue and he asks, how would you compare the two? In fact, I would suggest that if CASAC wants to offer advice on specific numerical and levels. that's the advisory committee. Clean yeah. Air Science Advisory Committee. That they ought to think about what is the actual level of health benefit that is going to be achieved with these various levels. Why should we have one air pollutant governed in terms of a, a, a large increase in terms of health benefit, another very limited? So he's raising a, an important point in terms of making this policy judgment. I would emphasize that the best advice, I think, that came from a, a Clean Air Standards Advisory Committee occurred in the 97 round with the particular matter standard when the letter to the administrator contained the specific recommendation of each member of the panel. Well, Consensus is in some ways not science. It's a sociological phenomenon. Maybe just one comment since we brought up 97. To some degree, a large part of the country is not in compliance with the 1997 standards, as I understand it. And right now, these 2008 standards are not being, uh, have not been implemented. Is that correct, Mr. Walker? That's Walk? correct. The, uh, the, the dirty little secret behind the president's um, intervention was that as a practical matter for the next three years, we will continue to live under the highly outdated uh, 1997 standard uh, that is significantly higher than what is necessary to protect public health, including vulnerable populations. I, I just don't think it's a defensible suggestion that there are not health benefits to uh, reducing the ozone standard to fall within the range that was recommended, especially for those vulnerable populations that the law mentions in its legislative history that are um, required uh, in, in the ample margin of safety standard. So uh, the EPA will stumble along for the next 
several years. The president um, suggested that the next pr process would be completed in 2013. In fact, there's a notice on the agency's website that says they don't expect to have final standards until July of 2014. So, you know, this was, this was just riven with politics and, and really misrepresentations to the public. And unfortunately, it's going to uh, fall to the courts to sort it out since um, uh, the executive branch bungled it so badly. And potentially the voters, given the fact that there will be an election in 2012, so we don't really know who will be in charge of either the EPA or the country at that point. Do we have a question? Uh, Robin Herman is here, who is the director of the forum, and put this panel together and is communicating with the online world. And I'm wondering if Robin has a question yes, from the there, online. Yes, um, we've received several questions from our online audience. Um, this one comes to us from California from Joseph Liu, who is president and CEO of the Coalition for Clean Air. And he's asking, um, uh, he would be interested in the panelists' comments on the experience in Los Angeles where stringent air quality regulations have been well established and evolving for decades and refineries have been profitable in part because these regulations have required regular equipment upgrades and strict maintenance, thereby creating more efficient and reliable operations. Anyone want to talk about that? Um, yeah, why don't we have uh, Dr. Montgomery uh, jump in on that? I have spent a good bit of time working on both issues of refineries and California air quality standards. Um, refining has hardly ever been a profitable business. Um, it is one which survives because uh, the demand for gasoline is so solidly established and changes so very slowly, um, but the refineries in California have faced very large costs. Most of those costs have been passed on in the form of the highest gasoline prices in the country. And that's where the cost of those standards and, appears. Uh, Mr. Walk. So the, uh, a group in Washington called the Center for American Progress did a very informative study to uh, you know, educate the White House um, of the differences between um, economic growth rates, unemployment rates, and other economic indicia in um, counties that were um, complying with the ozone standard we now have and not complying and there was essentially no meaningful difference it was lost in the noise um, it was around you know one percent or so and you know the White House was presented with that information unfortunately they were also presented with maps of the United States that were um, identifying which areas would fall into non-attainment and um, very prominently highlighting um, uh, you know states that were swing states in the upcoming election by the American Petroleum Institute and you know we the, the, we, we we know which information they weighed more heavily now well let, well, let, let me just uh, say before everybody jumps in give us a sense of if this draft regulation had gone into effect which areas of the country have the, the worst ozone pollution? Where, where would we not want to live? L.A. might be one of them, I think we can guess. Uh, what are a well, factually? Well, I'd go to Albuquerque, yeah. New Mexico. Yeah, and coincidentally, okay. we have two from Albuquerque right. here. <laughs> I think we have clean air in Albuquerque. Uh, and I think in general we have a healthy population. But I can identify a number of important health risks that would warrant both public and private expenditures addressing a lower ozone standard would not meet that list. There isn't just a blank checkbook over there to write the checks to achieve attainment of these standards. The standards apply across the country. So it would not be just the worst areas, it's across the country. 
has tremendous influence on where industries are able to move. We have areas that are paralyzed today because they are non-attainment. We have areas, if the standards lowered, they will move into non-attainment, impossible, very difficult to have industry relocate there. So there, there, there are important repercussions of a change in the standard. Well, I think there's the question of the economic repercussions, which have come up repeatedly. And uh, Mr. Walk has raised the question of the political underlying issues. And certainly in uh, Washington with the Republicans, the EPA is under a lot of attack. How does that fit into this? I, I want to answer the question that came from the <laughs> people in California because I think it represents another example of where regulation motivates industry to, to improve things. And I, I think I see that as a very positive uh, uh, way that, that uh, good scientifically based regulations can influence uh, industry to improve. Uh, I, I'm sorry that Albuquerque... And to relocate. Now, we have businesses in Albuquerque today because they have moved from Southern California. I, I don't know who's paralyzed, but uh, the, I know I visited Wyoming where they have an ozone problem in the winter or, around a, a gasification facility. And it's the regulations are inspiring them to improve their process, and they don't see it as shutting them down. They just see it as well, we've got to figure out why this is happening and, and let's uh, learn how to do it better. That's Answer a good your, um, political question. There was a, an amendment in Congress introduced um, two days ago by a Republican congressman from Ohio uh, to eliminate the Clean Air Act's 40-year exclusive consideration of health in setting clean air standards. Uh, the amendment was a simple um, and brutal one-sentence insistence that cost and feasibility to industry be taken into account. And, you know, I, I, I think and I hope that will fail, but it, what it would reflect is a decision to uh, take away a right to clean air based upon, um, you know, what is healthy or unhealthy that Americans had enjoyed for over 40 years. But as you, uh, you know, alluded to, there's a um, a, a Tea Party-driven rampage in Washington right now that is willing to throw lots of things overboard, and the Clean Air Act is one of them. Dr. I Montgomery. won't address Mr. Walk's political sentiments that I disagree with, but I will address his economics, which I think is just wrong. Um, I actually looked at the study for the Center of American Progress that he cited, and I think the broad lesson we see from this is that what we just talked about, about uh, the politics and the pressures of the economy on politicians, are leading to very bad economics and very misleading statements coming from the advocates of tighter air quality regulation. And it's unnecessary because you can do good economics that balances costs and benefits. But that study, I spent some time trying to think, and I realized there were several very bad statistical flaws in the study, but the real problem was that it claimed to analyze the effects of the 1997 ambient air quality standards. Um, on attainment and non-attainment areas. And it took a sample of, I think it was 2005 to 2008 as the time period. But I then looked at the timeline. None of those areas have yet started to implement any programs to achieve the 1997 Clean Air Act uh, National Ambient Air Quality Standards. So of course there was no difference. They weren't doing anything different yet because of those standards. So we see again, a study which has absolutely no economic basis being used to, to claim something which 
simply flies in the face of everything every economic student learns. That if you want to have more of one thing, you have to have less of something else. The question is how to make that judgment. Okay, we're going to go back to the audience while we ponder that. Uh, do we have another question? Get the mic. Yeah. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, my name is um, Shane Wandiola. I'm one-year MPH program in health policy and management. Can, can you speak just a tiny bit louder? Sorry, the, I'm not sure the mic is on. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm a one-year MPH student in health policy and management. Now, um, well, what I think is the, 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 the issue here is the dissociation between um, science and reality. Like how how um, realistic is bringing down the ozone layers to uh, level to 60 um, parts per billion, because no matter how low we tend to go, there is no amount that is totally safe that will eliminate the risk of ozone deaths in the population. So what we need to consider is, is there much benefit from lowering from 75 to 60? We already said that there has been um, a reduction, a, an obvious reduction in ozone deaths from 84 to 75. Now, going below that, do we really stand to gain much? Because what I believe is um, the, the role of policymakers are not to just follow the science to the letter. They're supposed to use their guidelines to make informed decisions. It's just like a basis. So what if another study comes up tomorrow and says um, it's the, the, the safety level has been reduced to 40? Is, uh, do the policymakers go to that 40 again? What would your question be? Because so I my think question we've addressed is, are, are there this? studies now today comparing um, levels of 75 parts per billion to 60 parts per billion? Because what we've been hearing is um, comparing the 84 to the 60 that the, the panel um, arrived at in 2008. Now, what should be the focus now? Should, uh, are there um, studies that have shown uh, comparing the 75 parts per billion to the 60 parts per billion level? Well, I think I think one thing because we're down in in details here, and and at least as I understand it, and I'm a generalist trying to translate here, that that committee was not. It wasn't. It was a range. It was not. 60, wasn't it? Uh, you can speak, Dr. Henderson, but just briefly, because we have Well, I would applaud the, uh, uh, the students' uh, comments. I think they uh, reflect a very thoughtful view. The answer to the question of how low is low enough is a policy judgment to be made by an elected or appointed official guided by the best scientific advice available. But scientists should not pretend they're the EPA administrator and say, I know what the standard should be. If they do that, they are expressing their own personal policy preference as to the outcome. Yeah, but that's why we gave a range, Roger. We do not. So there we wasn't a single number. Why, why don't you clarify that? What, there what? was not a single number. We looked at the range that we thought would be protective of public health, which turned out to be 60 to 70 parts per billion, but in no way has any member of KSAC ever thought they were responsible for setting uh, uh, the standard. That's the business of the administrator, and the administrator chose to go outside that range for whatever reason. Uh, the, it's, uh, that was his decision in, in 08. So no, we, they, uh, no I, I've never known anyone uh, who was a member of KSAC who thought that a member of KSAC should set the standard. But they were giving this, the best scientific advice they that give they the best, had. And it, if you don't give it purely on a scientific basis, tell it like it is to the administrator, the, the advice is of no value. If you try to hedge it so that it 
you know, is politically acceptable, then you, your uh, advice is of no value. It's, it's got to be the view. What do you really think uh, is health protective with a margin of safety? And that's what uh, we tried to do. Uh, Robin, Herman, do you have another online question? Yeah. Yes, um, th this one, if, uh, I read into it a little bit of exasperation. Um, this is from Greg Thomas uh, in Colorado. He's the Environmental Assessment and Policy Section Supervisor for the Denver Department of Environmental Health, um, which would have to look after and implement some of these regulations. And he says, um, uh, he's addressing it to Drs. Henderson and Dockery. Um, so why even proceed with a reconsideration in 2009 since the administration knew that it would be one to two years before its decision was final and at a time when the economy was arguably worse than it is now? So you, you see what he's saying is that uh, why did we even begin this when the economy a couple of years ago was terrible and then, then uh, the president is saying now we're not going to proceed because uh, the economy I, is I terrible. I think actually um, perhaps right. uh, from a legal standpoint, uh, we had a, a comment from Mr. Walk about the fact that there was a legal uh, battle going on in the courts on this. Would you just want to restate it briefly? Sure. What, what Administrator Jackson said in 2009 is she didn't want to, you know, uh, she, she didn't think the standard was um, protective enough, legally sufficient, or scientifically sound. Uh, she didn't want to waste the court's time um, over a lawsuit uh, involving a standard that was uh, not one that should be defended or preserved. Uh, and she genuinely, out of uh, good faith and sincerity, was trying to better protect the public and follow the law. Um, the, the, the rug was rudely jerked out from under her on September 1st, uh, the day before the president's decision, when she was first informed that this was going to happen. So the reason we, um, you know, delayed uh, and, you know, arguably wasted uh, two and a half years is because EPA was trying to do the right thing it's until politics rudely intervened, and we now have seen that the last, you know, two and a half years were, were wasted. I'd refer you to the memo from Cass Sunstein as a responsible official in terms of the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs and OMB. He was charged with reviewing this. He is also an attorney, distinguished career, coming to the University of Chicago, back to the University, Harvard University, and he pointed out that it simply did not pass the test in terms of it was, it was a discretionary action and the standard now would be not based on the best available science. It simply did not meet his test and I would say as an attorney of something that should be done now. They should adhere to the regular schedule. That confirms my point. It wasn't Mr. Sunstein's decision to make any more than it was the president's. And the reason the science was now three years stale is because they had let EPA believe that they were going to be allowed to follow the law until they decided at the last minute they weren't. So, of course, the science is three years old. They let EPA waste that time and then rudely pulled the rug out from under them. So, to sum up here, um, Looking forward, I guess, and I, I hesitate to get into any uh, football analogies, even though it's football <laughs> season, but um, so President Obama has thrown the ball backwards to uh, his administrator and said, let's have a time out. So they're having a huddle on this, and this huddle is going to be a very long huddle going on until after the next election into 2013-14 at which point we will be following the process that was already underway 
to come up with a new rule, but with an asterisk. In the meantime, we will be back in the courts where we were before this started. So I think we are seeing in our discussion today the complexities of both the scientific review process, the legal uh, review process, the economics, theoretical and real, and then the political overlay. And so I think everybody can take a little message from this and perhaps write down on a, a pad what, what you think will be happening on the, this <laughs> issue. And, and also because this is an important symbol of some of these environmental issues that obviously go, goes beyond the question of ozone and smog. So I want to thank this really uh, great panel uh, for all of your insights and Dr. Dockery for a very clear opening and, and also uh, the Harvard School of Public Health for the forum. And uh, we will conclude now. Thank you very much. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.